So we are back yet another week. Hello. It is April Fool's Day today. It is April Fool's Day today. We are here. Um, So welcome to this special edition of An Incomplete History. So what we're going to bring you is a 12-hour marathon discussion. I could do it. Of the minutia of the U.S. Constitution, things that nobody ever talks about. It's 12 hours. It's a live stream. It's a live stream. No, I'm joking, obviously. Um, I think we do have an interesting topic today. Vietnam. It was a viewer requested. Yes, this is a a listener requested requested topic. So thank you to Allison for reaching out to us and asking us to dig a little deeper into Vietnam. Um, And just for reference, you know, if anybody else is listening and they want some topic and want us to talk about it, just let us know. We're really happy to incorporate that in. And uh, we hope that this can kind of become a trend where we're just really kind of tailoring what we talk about to our listeners. So thank you, Allison. Yeah, definitely. So Vietnam is what we're going to talk about today, the Vietnam War. But before we get to that, um, I'd just like to remind people to like and subscribe, uh, depending on where you're listening to our podcast. Also, um, review us, particularly on Apple Podcasts. It's a great place to drop a quick review. Uh, keep up with our Instagram. Keep up with our website. Uh, if you feel so inclined, support us on Patreon. Help us offset the cost. Hillary and I are both poor educators. I think the public has a very twisted understanding of how much educators like us make. Right. (laughs) A student asked me, he was like, you're pulling in like six figures, right? No. And I was like, six figures if you count the decimal places. (laughs) (laughs) If you count the 23 cents, then sure, I'm pulling in six figures. Yeah. There is a a misconception about how much we make. But, you know, I always tell people – I like what I do. So, you know, I like I what I do. Sort of offsets. Yeah. But if you want to throw a little change our way and help us offset the cost of the podcast, that'd be awesome. Um, similarly, if you if you have something we you want us to talk about, let us know via any of the platforms we're on. Let us know and we'll try to address it. So uh, so let's start the episode. Welcome to an incomplete history. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So you're kind of in a sweater or something. What are you in? Yeah, I've got a sweatshirt on because it's cold cold all of a sudden again. Yeah, we have a freeze or frost warning for tonight. We had tornadoes a couple days ago. There's trees down in the neighborhood. And now suddenly it's like, you know, really cold. So I think a couple weeks ago I said some nonsense. Like, I think we're done with our cold weather. And it's like, no, we're not. And I think I laughed. Yeah, I think you did too. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, that's not how the South works. Yeah, well, but by Sunday, it's supposed to be really nice. So that'll be nice for like some Easter egg hunting, et cetera. It's hot. Which I still haven't gotten to the bottom of why we hunt Easter eggs, but whatever. That's a topic for another day. It is hot here. That's what I heard. Beach weather. It is beach weather. It is wonderful. I love it. I live in Southern California, not for super hot weather, but for not cold weather. And it has been a cold winter this year in San Diego. You Particularly thing. February. February and March were really cold. Yeah. You um, probably got like some seasonal depressive episodes because of the, the cold. Uh, probably. Yeah. And, and granted, our cold is not nearly as cold as many places. But for us, it was felt cold. But it is legitimately, it was warm. It was hot yesterday. It's hot again today. Um, I love it. Sun. You can go out and grade papers outside. I can. I like had to to like refinish my patio table now that the long cold winter's over so I can go out and like use it. I'm going to teach from there and I'm going to grade papers from there. So if I could get a reliable Wi-Fi signal, I'd go to the beach and teach. 
Yeah, yeah. So that would university be cool. from the beach. Um, so today we're talking about Vietnam. And neither of us are 20th century historians. Yeah, disclaimer for sure. Um, but I but think I we are interested in this. I personally, I'm interested in this because I do broader ideas of the U.S. and imperialism. Yeah, it is super connected to kind of the ideas that you that you work with as early as the 19th century, right? I right. mean, this mm-hmm. is this is kind of connected there, and I think that's what people don't really get is like Vietnam is part of a much larger conflict mm-hmm. that's happening simultaneously. So we'll probably get into that a little bit today, but uh, you know, this is not my area of specialty. I will say that, but I am fascinated by it and revisiting everything for the episode today. I just, again, I walked away and go, what a mess. Oh yeah. What a mess. I mean, it's bad. So, I love to troll my students with this. So if somebody were to ask us, tell us a little about the Vietnam War, I would say, well, you have to go back to the 18th century. Well, really, in order to understand it, you're going to have to go back a couple hundred and you have years. That's yeah, no, true, though. And, well, you have to go back to the British driving the French out of North America. Absolutely. It Absolutely, forces the French to look other places. The French have to go pursue their imperial uh, desires and elsewhere. And they end up in what was considered to be, it was called French Indochina. Mm-hmm. Yes, for a very yeah. long time. For a very long time, uh, French Indochina, it incorporated portions of modern day Vietnam, modern day Cambodia, modern day Laos, Laos. French Indochina. And I mean, I kind of joke when I say that, but at the same time, France is there for not quite a hundred years. So they're very entrenched in Southeast Asia. Um, if you like Vietnamese food, uh, there's a sandwich called a banh mi that's served on a baguette. Like there you that shows you the French impact on Vietnamese culture. And how long that is, is this connection there. So the kind of to set the stage before we get to how we get involved, um, at the end of World War One, we'll go back to a president we kind of impugned before. Woodrow Wilson preached this idea of internationalism, right? So remind us what Wilson's, what Wilson wants at the end of the war. You, do you mean like which treaties and stuff after? Well, World just generally, War I? just generally, what did he want to happen to colonies? To start to dissipate. He wanted self determination. Yeah. Now he was it was very limited by race, right? He he was, right. Wilson is a he is, subscribes to a very narrow idea of who's capable to to rule themselves, but he is pushing in that direction. Fast forward to World War II, and the French get kicked out of Indochina, and, and it gets ruled by Japan. By Japan, right. It's part of Japan's imperial venture. For the majority of the world. It's called the – and Japan doesn't call it an empire, right? They call it an Asian co-prosperity sphere. Right, right. And one of the things the Japanese do in their propaganda is to say, look, we're going to kick all these Westerners out. Yeah, we're kicking all of these white colonizers and, yeah, this Western colonization that's happened, and we're going to rule ourselves. Yeah. um, With us over all of you, because as Japanese, we actually are better to rule than you are. Right. (laughs) So uh, at the end of World War II, and during the Japanese occupation, you get these insurgent groups that rise up to fight against the Japanese. And these insurgents. Because the Japanese were brutal. Oh, yeah. I mean, they weren't going over there to be nice. I mean, that's, I think that that's a whole other topic of conversation. But just the Japanese in these different regions, I mean, into what is now Vietnam, but um, even in Korea, China, et cetera, right? The Japanese are just ruthless, brutal. Um, millions of people die as a result of their version of imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so you do, you have people that are cropping up like insurgent groups that crop up in these regions to try to fight off this invader, because even though there had been, um, you know, there was colonialism under the French and stuff, it, it wasn't, I mean, this was just a completely brutal and new regime that came and took over that was not necessarily uh, gentle in this takeover, right? Yeah. And and I think what's really interesting here is that these insurgent groups are supported by Westerners. They are supported by um, sure. France, the United States. They are support of uh, Britain. They are supported by these groups uh, because it's an expedient way to put pressure on Japan. To make it so Japan has to split its its resources. They can't just focus on kind of the United States as it cartwheels across the Pacific Ocean. They have to worry about these things that that are nominally domestic issues now, right? Domestic terrorism is what they would class it. But um, so in many ways, these nascent independence movements is what they're going to turn into are formulated and formed during this period. And most of the people who are participants in it, particularly somebody like Ho Chi Minh, and we're going to, we'll talk about him more a little bit later, they're educated in France. These are French-educated people. And there's an understanding as the war starts to wind down, particularly carried forward by FDR, that at the end of the war, as a reward for helping fight fascism, whether you're in Algeria fighting against the Nazis and the Italians, or you're in uh, Vietnam fighting against the Japanese, there is going to be a decolonization that takes place. That European countries will no longer maintain these colonies. There won't be an expansion of that colonial system. And in fact, there'll be a retraction of it. And so the Japanese are defeated, 1945. And that's not what happens in Indochina. No, that's not what happens. As a matter of fact, the French are just like, no, we're still in charge here. Um, I mean, and it takes about 10 or I guess nine years, because it's not until 1954 that you start these negotiations um, between the French and the North Vietnamese to completely remove troops. Well, you, uh, because you have this long conversation. Right. You have this conflict that emerges, like all these groups that had been armed and ready to fight the Japanese. It's easy for them to pivot and simply fight French fight occupiers French. now. Yeah. And it becomes somewhat of a civil war, right? It's what very is- similar to what, I mean, it's, we'll talk about 1954. 1954 is a bad year for France. Um, so the, this conflict is expanding right after the war, right after the Japanese are kind of kicked out. But in 1950, the Russians and the Chinese make it clear they want to expand communism. Communism, right. And they will support communist insurgents. Right. So this is, like I mentioned earlier, part of a broader conflict, which is the Cold War, which is an ideological conflict about which form of government is going to reign supreme in all these different regions. And so you have the United States that becomes involved in what are these proxy wars trying to eradicate communism? Cause there's this idea of a domino effect. If one place becomes communist, then another and another and another, and eventually communists will rule out as the leading form of government in the world. And so Vietnam, French, Indochina, right? This region where there's this conflict going on, it's a part of a broader conflict that's uh, that's ideological in origin of what form of government will rule out. And you have the Russians and the Chinese on one side of it, and then you have a lot of different Western powers and nations on the other side of it using this region, which would become Vietnam, as kind of a battleground. So Dwight Eisenhower becomes president Selected in 52, becomes president in 53. Dwight Eisenhower was supreme commander of the Allied forces in the European theater, um, was the presiding officer over D-Day and kind of the beginning of the end for Nazi forces in Europe. Uh, he becomes president and Eisenhower subscribes to the policy of containment which is to limit communist expansion. He does not want an out-and-out war with Japan or not Japan, with China and the Soviet Union. 
he wants well, to. Well, this learn. comes to fruition too with the, the Korean War too, right? Right. We've got this whole other thing, and I can already see we're going to have to do an episode on the Korean War. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Um, I just but it's it's very different in some ways because unlike the Korean War, which the United Nations picks up as a mission it needs to be involved in, the Vietnam War goes from one imperial power to another, to another, right? It goes from the French to the Japanese, back to the French. And by 54, things are pretty bad in Vietnam, in Indochina for the French. Eventually, the French suffer this huge defeat at this garrison called Dien Bien Phu. And they quickly move to sign kind of peace settlements with these insurgents. Eisenhower does not, his administration doesn't want to take part in those. Um, He thinks it's too far. It's going to allow communism to spread more. And he begins to support a state that gets formed after this called South Vietnam. Right. So you have a split. Right. So, I mean, this is, if you want to talk about when the U.S. kind of officially starts to get involved, it's under Eisenhower. Prior to that, it's not really official. But under Eisenhower, there is a conscientious, or not conscientious, a conscious move to get involved in Vietnamese politics, to support um, this guy who actually usurps the king of Vietnam, um, Diem, and put him into power. Now, what's interesting, and we can go back and kind of delve into details here as we want, Diem actually gets assassinated shortly before JFK's assassination. Right. When he's not a very popular leader. By the same people. Stop it. We're going to have to do another conspiracy theory episode. <laughs> There's strong evidence the CIA was involved in Diem's assassination. Well, because he was a very unpopular leader. He was, he was horrible. Up. The people hated yeah, him. Yeah, everybody everybody hated him. Um, and, the, and he was assassinated, yes. The criticism within um, Kennedy's administration at that point is that Diem is such a bad president. He's actually driving people. To want to be part of North Vietnam. Driving people to wanting to be part of, yeah, the Viet Cong. A lot of the peasants, because he wouldn't allow for any land acquisition. He People were suffering greatly under his, um, I don't know, leadership, I guess. And he was unpopular with his own people. And he was unpopular with us who had put set up the little puppet government. But he wasn't, he wasn't acting in the way that we wanted him um, to. And so he's very unpopular for both ways. Uh, both sides of that. But um, what I find interesting, I guess, I don't know if it's too early to get into it, but it's just like, there's, there's a civil war going on where even people who live in South Vietnam who are under this non-communist rule, and I don't want to say it's democratic because it's definitely not that, um, but it's not communist and there are forces trying to come in, you know, partially the United States trying to come in and, and set up something that mirrors democracy in some way. But that a lot of people who were in the region of South Vietnam weren't interested in that. They wanted to be a part of the communist regime in the North. And so you don't have like this widespread support for United States involvement or occupation. So Ho Chi Minh's communist insurgency that eventually becomes the government of North Vietnam, one of the things they institute is land reform. Right. Um, They take land out of the ownership of these huge landholders that was a legacy of the French imperial system. Right, and they redistribute it to all these peasants and everybody's kind of getting something. And if you're a peasant in South Vietnam, that sounds like a pretty good deal. However, if you're an elite, educated, French-educated, urbanite, that does not sound good. Right. And it sounds like communism. It sounds sounds like like. communism, which which is what it is. So February 8th, 1962, the Kennedy administration forms this official military program, the Military Assistance Command Vietnam. Um, And its whole purpose is to expedite and accelerate military monies flowing in to help the South Vietnamese government. Now, at this point, it's interesting to note, this is not about U.S. troops fighting for the South Vietnamese. This is simply about money and material aid 
and eventually advisors being provided to help them. Right. To try to not just establish, but to um, stabilize government and to stabilize people who are living in that region to be receptive, right, to to commun or to um, anti-communist uh, government. And I think one of the things that starts happening too, I mean, even though there aren't, you know, a huge amount of troops or anything like that, like you're saying, it's, it's mostly supported through um, artillery and funds and advisors, et cetera. One thing that does start to happen though, right at this time from, it happens from 1962 all the way through 1971 is this period uh, or this uh, thing called Operation Ranch Hand, which is the military code name for spraying pesticides and herbicides from from airplanes, U.S. airplanes and aircraft, all throughout Southeast Asia for a period of about ten years. And between these times, they sprayed about nineteen million gallons of herbicide. Eleven million of that consisted of Agent Orange. Um, and it was meant to spray over the forests of Viet South Vietnam. The jungle. Um, the jungle, right? To try to just kill off these crops in this jungle, um, to try to reveal insurgents who may have been. So that's the thing. The U.S. initially tries to go in by air. Like, we're going to win this war by going, flying over. And there's a complete disregard for civilians. Complete disregard. Well, because there's no easy way for commanders to identify as somebody secretly via Kong. That was the huge problem. They had no idea who was on what side. So they just kind of indiscriminately went in and peppered the entire region with Agent Orange and Napalm to destroy the jungle. And it killed a lot of people. Well, it's also incredibly carcinogenic. There's still issues. There, there are still issues that are uh, related to Agent Orange uh, in that region. It's illegal now. <laughs> which is illegal now. But so on the eve of Kennedy's assassination, 16,000 U.S. military personnel are in South Vietnam as advisors. They are not there to kind of fight battles, but they are there as advisors and meanwhile, the United States is beginning to pursue this thing that you talked about, right? Which is this idea of we're going to get more directly involved, but it's not going to ever be troops on the ground. Right. It's and going to be always in it's like support of South Vietnamese soldiers. Yeah. Um, and then Kennedy's assassinated. By who? <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the thing. One of the conspiracy theories is the reason he's assassinated is that Kennedy wants to stop the escalation of the Vietnam conflict. And then there are powers that be that want to escalate the Vietnam conflict. The military industrial complex. Right. Because of the Cold War. That Eisenhower warns us about on his way out of office, right? He says this military industrial complex. I don't think there's a lot of compelling evidence Kennedy's going to get us out of the Vietnam conflict. Um, we don't know for certain. We know that some of his advisors are very hawkish on war. Um, Lyndon Johnson comes in, and I think Lyndon Johnson's willing to engage in a more direct conflict. And this incident, and I'm using scare quotes, happens. Um, so off the coast of Vietnam, North Vietnamese gun votes fire on the USS Maddox. The Gulf of Tonkin incident, yes? In the summer of 64. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we know today about the Gulf of Tonkin? Well, that it was it didn't happen exactly as they reported. It a little beginning. resemblance to what it we were It was like talking. a ruse, right? I mean, it was like a ruse used to uh, kind of like drum up support within the United States for going to war, right? Yeah, and and uh, Johnson uses it as an excuse to launch this massive air bombing of North Vietnam. And you're going to see this repeatedly throughout this conflict is the U.S. always uh, seems to go back whenever stuff happens that's really bad. They always go back to just massive bombing. Because remember, we're still dealing with 
a country that by the end of World War II had the largest number of bombers in the world. So we can do it. The United States can carry this out. But what they're misunderstanding is all they're doing is creating more people willing to fight for the Viet Cong with this indiscriminate carpet bombing. Exactly. That's what it is. It's the indiscriminate bombing. And, you know, using this incident, this Gulf of Tonkin incident as a pretext for escalation, mm-hmm. it was a very much of a planned event. Um, and they, you know, the American government or military, right, this military industrial complex wants to drum up support for further involvement in Vietnam. And this incident is like this kind of this moment, you know, so we're going from 1954 to 1964. The U.S. is not really that involved, no troops on the ground kind of thing. You know, you say 62, you have 16,000 people who are there as advisors, et cetera. But it's after this moment, 1964, where you just have an outright invasion. Um, well, March and, 65. Right. So as carrying out these air bombing attacks, the they have to protect these Air Force bases. And Johnson sends Marines in to Da Nang to pr- protect the air base at Da Nang in March of 65. And this is when we actually get U.S. combat troops. Um, they aren't simply there in it as an advisory role. They're in a protective role. And this rapidly escalates. So nine months later, you're looking at almost 200,000 U.S. soldiers in Vietnam. And at this point, the draft has not been initiated, but it, it has not been reinstituted, right? Because and and this is the thing: is this war is barely registering on most Americans' radar. Well, there's a lot of confusion as to why the United States is involved in the first place, because historically speaking, the United States has always erred on the side of isolationism. I'm not sure if we touched on this prior, but I will say. We're back-to-back World War winners, but we didn't really want to be involved in either of those conflicts. It took a long time for the United States to say, okay, fine, we'll get involved in World War I. Okay, fine, we'll get involved in World War II. Um, And then, like you said, I mean, the United States comes in and just bombs everything to oblivion. But civilian populations in the United States, historically, we've always been very kind of like anti-confrontational. It's the military industrial complex that drives this aggression or this imperialism Mm -hmm. that we see time and time again. But civilians themselves are never really eager or hawkish to go to war. And it's a proxy war, right? It is a proxy war. And so I think there's a lot of people in the 1960s that are like, what, what are we doing? Why are we going to war with them? They don't, there's no, there's no threat. That's the whole thing too, is like, there is an external threat of communism. And I think that people are, on hyper alert about like the H bomb and they're doing bombing drills and people have a lot of anxiety about Russia, but going and fighting a war in this region known as French Indochina, slowly becoming turning into this region known as Vietnam, the United States people, civilians in the United States are like, why there's no, I mean, to them, there's no compelling reason to get involved in it because it is, Strictly political and strictly a proxy um, conflict. So it's not registering on their radar in 1964, but it's going to really quickly and it becomes an outright cultural melee within the United States, civilians within the country, right? There's never good support for the war. Um, There becomes civilian... Uh, or civil unrest, you know, in response to this conflict. Um, and I think that's kind of what I think most people walk away knowing about the Vietnam War was that it was unpopular. Mm-hmm. It was unpopular for good reasons. Well, it's it's unpopular for a period of time. Prior to that, it's just unknown. People just don't even really know what's going on. They're not paying attention. They don't. Um, it is a period of general prosperity in the United States. And at the same time, there are domestic issues going on. This is the civil rights movement is going on domestically in the United States at this point. And most Americans can't even point to Vietnam on a map. If you were to give them a map, they would not know where to look. They still can't. They still can't. Um, uh, maybe if we taught geography, they would do that. Um, but 
what's interesting is we have this memory that the Vietnam War just drags on forever. And it and that's it's becoming an increasingly quaint memory in the wake of our involvement of Afghanistan and yeah. Iraq and other places. What year are we in now? 20th? Um, 2000, 2001 is when we go in and bomb in Afghanistan. It's 20 years, 2003 for Iraq. Um, and I would say the American public is largely apathetic to this. Well, you've become used to it. We don't even think about it. Do you think about the war every day? I don't think about it every day, no. What, you, what gets people thinking about it? So you're, it's interesting. You're like, it's not even a blip on their mindset. And we do think about how long it was. What gets people incensed is the draft in 1969. Well, so here's, so here's what happens. So 65, we get the first combat soldiers. We get about 200,000 soldiers by the end of 65. By 66, we're up to almost 400,000. And by 67, we're at a half million soldiers. And at that point, they've largely tapped the number of available military they can send. Any additional military will require either an increased number of volunteers, which is not happening, or a draft. Um, Johnson uh, declines to run for re-election, largely because of the failures of the Vietnam War. Um, and you get the 1968 presidential election, which is interesting because it is against the backdrop of one of my favorite things that happens in the Vietnam War. So in 1967, uh, or 1968, um, early 1968, Walter Cronkite, who is this mammoth figure on the CBS evening news, um, Everybody tuned in to hear Walter Cronkite report the news because it was reliable and you felt that Walter was telling you how things were. 1968, February, he goes over to cover the aftermath of the Tet Offensive, um, which is a huge U.S. defeat by Japanese or Japanese Vietnamese forces. So the Tet Offensive is when North Vietnamese Viet Cong troops staged huge attacks on over a hundred different outposts and cities. During Lunar New Year. During, yeah. And so that's Tet, right? Is why that's called that. So this happens in January of 1968 and it's a huge loss for the Americans. It is really bad. And so Cronkite goes over there and he comes back and on February 27th, 1968, he delivers one of the most important editorial speeches ever given on national TV. And back then the news used to tell you when they were going to editorialize because they would change the camera angle. They would change the background. They would change their desk. What they would do something and they would make it very clear. We are now going to editorialize Cronkite generally did not editorialize. He just reported the news, but he does it here. And this is where he famously says, we are mired in a stalemate. There is no way we are going to win this war, ever. And many people look at this and say, this is when the U.S. public, even if their support had been tepid, generally falls away. They're like, no. I'm right. Not well, Walter's telling you, Right. Right. I mean, Walter is telling you this is an unwinnable war. Well, and to see it firsthand and understand the complexities of what's going on within the country itself, or I guess there's like two countries-ish. But again, it's a civil war that's happening. And it is impossible for the United States to figure out who's on what side. And so the United States goes in just indiscriminately bombing all sorts of civilian populations. And it turns the civilians in South Vietnam against the United States. Well, this is the so Nixon administration. Right. Nixon gets, Nixon gets reelected or gets elected. And what he does is even though his total number of soldiers decreases after 1969, um, first of all, they institute the draft. Second of all, they feel, even though he runs on, bringing an honorable end to the war, he ups much at the behest of Henry Kissinger, who's the secretary of state, he ups bombings. 
and does basically the same thing the Johnson administration had done early in the conflict, which is we'll just bomb them so much they'll be willing to 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 talk about peace. Because we're being, yeah, because we're over bombing. And there's strong evidence that a lot of this bombing is a violation of human rights. In fact, Henry Kissinger, um, who is still alive, surprisingly enough, uh, there are some countries I don't think he can travel to safely because I think he will be arrested if he goes to them. Well, war crimes. Yeah. Here's the really important part of this. I like that you mentioned Walter Cronkite, and I really like that you mentioned about how the news worked back at that time. What's also important about that is this is the first televised war. You know, during the Second World War, we would have film reels and Korean war film reels. Yeah, news reels where people would go to the theater to watch them. Now, everybody has a television set in their home. And you are bombarded with images of the war and you're bombarded with news about it. Uh, You know, the programming is limited at the time. You can't just flip it off and ignore it. Um, Everybody kind of just watched the news and it was like one news network. And um, we start seeing and kind of understanding a little bit more about what's happening there. And we see this, the results of this indiscriminate uh, bombing, what the use of Agent Orange is doing to civilian populations. We're seeing the effects, birth defects, um, mass casualties among civilians, suffering. And we're understanding that even the people in Vietnam who we say we're helping don't want us there. Mm -hmm. They don't want us there. Well, but we also start to get U.S. soldiers returning who are horribly injured, both physically and mentally and and psychologically. Yes. Yes. But – One last thing about Cronkite. If you don't think Cronkite's reporting is not taken seriously by the military, in the Gulf War and in the Iraq War and in the war in Afghanistan, the military makes it a point to not repeat – the Pentagon specifically – makes it a point of not repeating the mistakes that were made of letting Cronkite report like that. And there was a conscious decision to manage the media in those more recent conflicts. And this is where we get during the first Gold War, Gulf, Gulf War, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf giving his daily briefings. It's to manage the media. It's to manage the narrative. Yeah. yeah. Because they know they cannot get, they can't let it get away from them like they did in 1968. But see, this goes back to what I was saying before is like, Americans aren't keen on war. And I think that that's a huge misconception about us. I think they weren't. I don't think they are still. I mean, we don't care, do we? I mean, day to day speaking, I I know there's a lot of adulation for the military. Particularly, I know what it's like to live in San Diego. It's a military town, mm-hmm. so I think you see a lot of that there. But I think by and large, people don't really even think about this on a day to day basis. And I think that we have this really bad reputation worldwide, right? Because globally, people look at us like we're these war hawks. But it's not the people of the United States. It's not the civilian population. It is the military. And I think that most people are just not interested in this. And I think that most people get horrified by being bombarded with images of children suffering and bombing and war when we don't see an external threat to us. The only reason the United States was able to lobby and drum up enough support to enter World War II was because of the Japanese bombing on Pearl Harbor. And nothing like that ever happened during Korea. Nothing like that ever happened in Vietnam. There was never a threat directly to the domestic, to our domestic space, you know? I will say this. I think the 1972 presidential campaign and its results might prove you wrong a little bit, though, about the U.S. and war. Because Nixon is running on for re-election on this kind of platform of an honorable withdrawal and finding a way to make all the sacrifices U.S. soldiers have done up to that point mean something. And we're not just going to end the war quickly versus Democrat George McGovern, who says an immediate withdrawal. Nixon wins in the most historic landslide in U.S. presidential history. I love that fact, too, though, that he does win a landslide like that. But don't you think that's evidence that Americans do support war on some level? Yeah, I get what you're saying. I do. I 
I think though, at that point, it's like that we'd already entered the war and we don't want to lose a war. That's what I would say. Okay. I don't think we're keen to enter. A we're war. reticent to enter conflicts, but once we're reticent in it, we're going to stay in it till we win it. That's absolutely. That's exactly it. That's how I feel about it. It's like, I don't think we want to enter them, but when we do, we don't want to lose. Spoiler alert. We do not win the Vietnam. Spoiler alert. It's a pretty, def- pretty big defeat. Yeah. But so another prominent person that comes to, to bear in this whole thing is Congress starts to have these hearings and you have this young veteran uh, who is a member of this group called the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. So he had served in Vietnam, came back and became a very staunch opponent of continued participation in the Vietnam War. And John Kerry, Senator John Kerry, presidential candidate John Kerry, Secretary of State John Kerry, testifies, and he actually says, how do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Because at this point, it becomes so abundantly clear that it was a mistake. And Nixon's people keep thinking, well, we have to have an honorable end. And it's like, so you admit it's a mistake, but we're going to keep doing it? Yeah. Like... Yeah, to save face in some way. Yeah. So at this point for Nixon, go listen to our Watergate episode. Right. (laughs) Gerald Ford becomes president of the United States. And he doesn't immediately remove us from Vietnam. He basically continues Nixon's plans, right? Mm -hmm. Mostly because Kissinger is his secretary of state. I also think there's like this insane pressure from the military don't don't you think that like that they kind of run things in a way where like you may have this platform politically, but good luck actually getting that through because the military is kind of running the show at this point. Well, it's yeah. And, and I think it changes many things about American culture. Um, it definitely changes the composition of communities. Um, Saigon collapses in 75 and we've all seen those images of the last helicopter lifting off from Saigon to take people out to the carriers that are and transports that are waiting and people realizing they're not going to be able to get on it. And there was real fear because the United States had spent at this point 20 years practically drumming up fear about what these communists would do once they were in power that they were going to line up all these former supporters of South Vietnam and kill them. And there's a lot of evidence that actually does happen. Um, but many of those refugees now, those Vietnamese refugees, uh, end up on America's West Coast, particularly in Southern California, in San Diego at Camp Pendleton. Yes. There's a really huge Vietnamese refugee population in San Diego. Which is interesting because here's the thing, and I, I want to tie this to another issue. There is a reason the refugee Cuban, Vietnamese, Korean populations are generally more conservative than other groups. Um, they don't like anything that smells like communism. Mm-hmm. They don't like anything that has the word socialism attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um in many ways, they see the U.S. as maybe not a savior, but at least a place of respite. Um, and it's the culture. I mean, we are living in the cultural aftermath of that conflict, right? Yeah. Um, but by the end of the war, and this is the interesting number, by the end of the war, 2.7 million U.S. soldiers serve in the conflict and just under 50,000 soldiers had died. U.S. soldiers. That's not counting North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, or civilians. And we move to those numbers, casualties go way up. The civilian death tolls were really, really uh, just, I don't know, just devastating. The civilian death tolls were devastating. And it has so much to do with our aggressive bombing campaigns, which, um, you know, we undertook for several, several years. Um, William Westmoreland, who's the general in charge 
does this thing in the late 60s. In 1966, they designate certain areas of South Vietnam as free fire zones. Yeah, they, they call it, sorry, they call it Operation Rolling Thunder from 65 to 68, right? And it is. It's just like free bombing zones. And there's well, they say if you're innocent, there. you need to get the hell out of there. And if you're there, you're obviously not innocent. So there's figures that say that the civilian death toll during Vietnam is as much as 2 million. 2 million. That's staggering when you look at the size of this country. It's just, it's just mind blowing to me. Um, And that the U S military estimates that somewhere between 200,000 and 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers died. So hugely different numbers than the United. I'm not. I'm not trying to diminish the number of U.S. casualties by any stretch, but there were a lot more casualties of the South Vietnamese military. Mm-hmm. A lot more. And when you really start to get into these numbers, it's like how many people died for like a vanity project. Well, at this point, it becomes just being stubborn and not wanting to admit defeat, but. Is is it fair to call Vietnam the beginning of the culture wars in the United States in their current manifestation? Are you talking about like on college campuses? Well, that, I mean, so we get the My Lai Massacre. Right. Um, which is horrific. Horrific. My um, Lai Massacre. So the My Lai Massacre, there's this little village called My Lai. Um, and it was believed the Viet Cong used it as a base to operate out of. And Charlie Company, um, which is part of America's 11th Infantry Brigade, goes in um, because they've been told that a village near them has been taken over by Viet Cong guerrillas. Charlie Company goes in. Uh, this is March 16th, 1968. Remember? This is just a couple of weeks after Walter Cronkite says we cannot win. Um, morale is pretty low. Remember, this is just a couple of months after the Tet Offensive. Um, 28 members of the company, of Charlie Company, had died during the Tet Offensive. So over 20% of their fellow soldiers had just been killed recently. I'm a little nervous. It sounds like you're justifying what happened. No, I want you to be in the mindset of it because I want the you to understand that this morale's is... Low and- so the villagers start to be gathered up because they have to try to figure out which of them are guerrillas. Um, and they don't find very many weapons at all. Uh, and most of the people in the village are women, children, and old men. And Lieutenant William Cayley orders his men to shoot the villagers. Who were predominantly women and children. And old men. And they were sexually assaulted too. And there was raping that went on. Uh, mothers were sh- mothers protected their children and they were shot. Um, when the children tried to uh, leave, the children were shot. Um, their houses were set on fire. Anybody who tried to leave a burning building was was shot as they tried to leave the burning building. Sergeant Michael Bernhardt, who was a soldier who was there, part of Charlie Company, said, I saw them shoot an M79 grenade launcher into a group of people who were still alive, but it was mostly done by machine gun. They were shooting, they were shooting women and children just like anybody else. When they were rounding <coughs> up and putting them in pits and massacring them, just machine gunning them down, and it was said that there was not a single shot that was fired against them, there was no resistance. And so this is, I would say, the most egregious incident. That, that we, we know, know of. of. That we know <laughs> so of. We both said that at the same time. We both, that we know of. 504 people killed in this. <sighs> it's 182 really women, 17 of them were pregnant. 173 children, including 56 infants. Oh, my God. It's, it's disgusting. And here's the thing. It was covered up. This massacre was covered up, you know, and so that's why I say it's like the, what we know of, we know of this one, but 
they took really um, strategic steps to cover up this massacre, knowing that the news of this would just create so much scandal, of course. For a year uh, and a half. Yeah. They cover this up completely. But when the story breaks in late 69, all hell breaks loose in the United States. Yes. And we have, are you saying this is kind of like the moment of cultural? I think it is because, because you get a real division in American society. You get people who are horrified by this and you get other people who say, well, war is hell. And they should not have been there. That's so interesting because we do see that the remnants of that today where people were just on such polar opposite sides of what they think is right and wrong. Yeah. Wow. So protests pick up. Protests. the beginning yeah. of 1970s. And we get the most famous one. Kent However, State. Oh. I want to talk about the one that happens 10 days after Penn St- Kent State. All right. So what, can we do Kent State really Let's quickly. do Kent State first. And then we'll talk about something that's closer to home for you. Okay. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, so we have the Kent State shootings. Uh, this happens on May 4th and 1970. And this is in Ohio. Um, National Guardsmen soldiers fired on student protesters who were protesting the war, and they just kind of mowed people down. Um, so the the National Guardsmen fired about 67 rounds um, over the course of 10 or more seconds, killing four students, wounding nine others, some suffering permanent paralysis. And People were just blown away by this. I mean, there was like a peaceful demonstration taking place on a college campus to protest the war. And then you have the domestic military, the National Guard, just start mowing down college students at Kent State. This was a huge moment, I think, to say, what is going on here? You know, this is causing so much disruption for all of these people abroad Now, domestically, we are completely disturbed by this. And all for what, right? For this vanity project, for this stubbornness of not wanting to get out. So that's what happens in 1970 in Kent State. But what happens 10 days after that? Go ahead. So Jackson State University, which is in Mississippi. Mississippi, yep. Two students are killed by police protesting the Vietnam War. Imagine that. Our right to protest is supposed to be sacrosanct, and here it's not. I mean, we could we could bring up many other incidents. I mean, there's this hard hat rebellion that takes place in New York City with construction workers attacking groups they deemed as hippies, anti-war hippies, and communist. Um, I I think this is I think there's a culture war that goes on in the United States right after World War One. But it's pretty mundane compared to the culture war. I think that sets that gets ignited as a result of Miley, because I think we still live in that culture war, where yeah. there's a real partisan division that happens in the country. You're either with what is it Bush said? You're either with us or against us, right? And well, it's, it's not just with us or against us. It's like you support the military or you don't, and it's like there's no nuance there anymore. It's like. You can't sort of kind of support the military or not. It's like this culture war. And I mean, I think the, yeah, the Miley massacre kind of sets in stone of just like, no, I actually don't support that. I don't support the mass rape and execution and torture of civilians in war. No, I don't support that. And it does. It comes down to these stark lines. And I love the line that you said where people are like, well, war is hell. Yeah. We don't want to be in it. Right. We don't want to do that, right? Well, it is hell. Let's not do it. Mm-hmm. So, so Vietnam ends up costing the United States $120 billion. Can you imagine how much money? From 1965 to 1973. Yeah. Um, it, on its own, helps contribute to stagflation in the United States which is a stagnating wages with increased consumer prices. Um, The oil crisis, it contributes to that, although the oil crisis itself is more closely linked with things that are going into the Middle East. Um, But psychologically, it 
it scars so many people. So first of all, you have 12 million refugees created as a result of this conflict. 12 million. You have all these returning soldiers, a half million returning soldiers, many of them with psychological scars that are not easy to see. Many of them with actual physical scars that are easy to see. Um, People who had been attacked by groups like the National Guard who will never again trust the U.S. government at all. And then you have other people who support the military effort and say that it was, they start to spin a very different narrative of why the U.S. loses the Vietnam War. And they and it becomes very racialized and very class-driven. And they say the reason the U.S. loses the Vietnam War is most of the soldiers fighting over there were brown and poor and uneducated and on drugs. Oh, geez. And if well, it had been white, middle-class men fighting the war, we wouldn't have lost. That's so stupid. But (laughs) yeah, there is that. There's, But then also there was this, you know, when people would come back, so so many people were drafted. Nobody knew, a lot of people didn't want to go. But when they came back, they were spat on, they were yelled at, they were assaulted. Um, And it creates a further divide where you have people who are assaulting these men who had to go fight. They didn't really have a choice in the matter. And they're getting called baby killers, et cetera. And it draws these stark lines in that way, too, where people who were peaceful, you know, wanting peace, weren't actually being so kind and peaceful to the people who were forced to go fight in Vietnam, who did come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, who couldn't go get doctor's notes for bone spurs. And Ouch. Draft dodge. Ouch. Right? Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about, so Barack Obama is too young to have served in Vietnam. What about Joe Biden? Right. He's, a, he's an old codger. Why wasn't he there? Bush. What about W? He's in the National Guard. His dad was a World War II, like, hero. I mean, there's the thing. Look at our president's. And the only one who had a reasonable excuse for not serving in Vietnam that didn't was too young. That was Barack Obama. Donald Trump, bone spurs. Um, W, uh, he was in the National Guard and like was doing some flying thing in Texas. Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. I think it's very disturbing. And I'm not saying every president should have to be a former military member, but I think it's very disturbing. And I think it's easy to see why a lot of times political leaders throw these young men and women's lives at problems and don't really worry about it too much. But then you look at like John McCain and his military service was not looked upon as honorable at times. Trump attacked it. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Kerry, when he's running for president, gets vilified. Right, for being against the Vietnam War after fighting in it. Well, this the swift boaters, right? I mean, it's so I, I mean, the legacy of the Vietnam is Vietnam War is one we live with. It is omnipresent. The sorry state of the VA is a oh direct gosh, result. A direct result of not being of, able to take care of the massive number of people. Who well, they couldn't out. take care of Vietnam War veterans, and then you get the first Gulf War, which piles on more veterans. Then you get the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq, not to mention the weird little wars that people like Reagan have us do across the world. Doing weird little wars. Well, like Grenada. Thinking about Grenada, right? I mean, it's like, what the hell is that? Why is the U.S. worried about a radio station on Grenada? Yeah, well... It's all part of the larger conflict, right? Right. It's It's all a part of the larger conflict conflict in context of the Cold War. There's just a lot of tension. I mean, that's the thing is at the end of the day, the Soviet Union, China, the United States, and the military industrial complex, and the politicians who are kind of driving this stuff, and the generals who are kind of dictating policy – They don't give a shit, pardon the word, about the Vietnamese people. They don't care about the condition of individual soldiers. Right. And they don't care about their own prerogatives to lead themselves. Because, again, there were so many people in South Vietnam 
who preferred communism. Mm-hmm. And it's like, let them have their own self-determination, right? Like we started talking about Wilson's, like they can be self-determined to choose their own government. We don't get to go around and pick governments for other countries, although we love to do that. But the policy of containment dictates that you have to contain communism. You cannot let it spread. Yeah, but at the expense of what? Invading other uh, countries? It's logic- it is the only logical way you can prevent it. But it's not popular when we go in and no, we're not, not wanted, right? No, it's I mean, not. it's like a total mess. I mean, this, like- this, this is a – so when Dwight Eisenhower leaves office in 1960 and gives his farewell – or 61 and gives his farewell address, he says this military-industrial complex – and if you've never watched that speech, you need to watch it. It's televised and it's a really powerful speech – He says this military industrial complex is going to get us into war after war after war because it's designed to profit on war. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, all these. I mean, all that comes true. I mean, we've been in perpetual conflict. And we've become used to it. And we've become used to it. And it's, yeah, it's just kind of part of what we do. Um, and, and, you know, our governments have also just been involved in so many incidents like that aren't full blown wars, but so many incidents in Latin America and Central America, um, right. Just politically speaking. And we didn't even get into Cuba. We didn't even get into the Korean war. El Salvador. Right. I mean, there's just so many. examples. Oh my gosh. Over and over and over and over again. And, you know, we're the ones who create this, uh, migrant crisis that's occurring right now at our border, um, because of these policies of containment, because of this meddling in other countries' politics, uh, trying to stop the spread of communists, et cetera, uh, communism and et cetera, uh, we've just created this, like, so many of these global crises that we find ourselves in. And I love that you've mentioned that speech from Eisenhower because he predicts that. Mm-hmm. He predicts that right out right. Even though he had participated in it. Sure. But he participated under a different context, I think. Kind of, but he was a staunch proponent of containment. He did believe the United States needed to contain communism. Um, but I think what is the, the legacy of Vietnam, um, first of all, if you ever get to Washington, D.C., you need to go see the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. That's wonderful. Um, it is a scar on the land. Um, because it is, this seems to be a very ill-conceived operation that everybody at some point early in the conflict actually decide is something we need to stop doing, but we can't figure out a way out of it. And it's not up to the individuals who were fighting the war. That's, it's always, you know, um, where is it? War is old men talking and young men dying, right? There's like, there's no you know, the people who were fighting day to day in these conflicts, and they're just in these awful conditions, trudging through the jungles, and it's hot, and there's snakes everywhere, and there's guerrilla warfare, and these insurgents, it's so, so dangerous, and raining constantly, and their feet hurt. I mean, just go on and on and on. These people have no control over that situation, mm-hmm. ever. And even when they come home, they're treated like garbage, even though By they have no sides. control. By both sides. By both sides, yeah. Ugh, um what a mess. It's a mess. And I and I think this is, you know, it is one of the most egregious errors the United States ever made. And I think oh, gosh, what's interesting I is <laughs> Oh, I consider It's bad, but I mean, we we cover something every week that I'm just like, I cannot believe we did that. Uh I'm talking about that the United States creates and carries out. I'm not talking about Are you talking about like global? Okay, like right. global. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah, this that makes something sense. the U.S. fosters and then create and makes it worse. And, um, but what I think is really interesting here is if you look at min- military analysts, they look at this and they say one of the reasons this thing fails and fails hard is there's just no clear idea of what exactly U.S. soldiers are even fighting for. Right, because again, I'll say it, a lot of people there were like, why are you here? You're not helping. 
And those soldiers hear that. Those soldiers hear those people say that. So they're like, we're not freeing the Vietnamese. They don't want us here. They don't want us here. Right. The North Vietnamese definitely don't want us here. Right. It's not like in World War II where you're going and liberating concentration camps and and people are cheering for you to come. Well, that's the thing is the the villainy of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany are so egregious. It's easy to spin a narrative of liberation. Right. Right. Even when the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong do bad things, the U.S. responds with doing something like my lay. Which is like, there's no moral high ground. The United States does not have the moral high ground in this conflict. They have no clear goals. They have no exit strategy, obviously. It's a mess. I think that we could spend a day, though, too, talking about the tyranny of communism in certain realms, right? I mean, we could talk about like the Khmer Rouge. We could talk about, oh, yeah. we could talk about, you know, just, just completely egregious stuff that's going on under these regimes in Cambodia um, around the same time. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in, in Cambodia, there's this horrible government that comes into power and they want to do this thing called year zero, where they basically reset the economy back to a pre-industrial agricultural economy and they basically shoot anybody who wears glasses. Right. And this happens right after the fall of Saigon, right after the United States uh, extricates itself from the region. And you have this just massacre that happens in Cambodia under Pol Pot. Um, and it's like Cambodian revolutionary politics. And like, that's one situation where it's like, man, we maybe we could have helped there. But I'm like, no, 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 we need to stop trying to help. Right. Like we need to just stay out of these sorts of things. But um, it's not like everything is beautiful and wonderful under communism, I guess. Right. Say. Well, but I mean, what's, what's ironic out of this? I mean, so out of this conflict, what's very ironic is this, I think, is that the U.S. is trying to stop the spread of communism into South Vietnam. U.S. soldiers often are able to take liberty in Thailand. And the U.S. presence in Thailand and its support of the monarchy there ironically keeps Thailand from ever going communist because of its strategic position near Vietnam and as a place for U.S. soldiers to go and to um, to rest and relax. It, there's something interesting there. I mean, the U.S. does succeed in keeping communism from spreading there. And now 90 Day Fiance does the same work. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Oh my. I'm glad you ended with that levity because it is kind of a downer episode. Oh, it's um, a downer. Yeah. But I think we have a lot of great um branches for discussion now. Oh yeah. You know, what could we talk about that can branch off from this? Oh my goodness, so many things. So I mean, if you listen and you have an idea, something you want us to talk about, let us know. Or we'll explore talk about it. explore further. It yeah. does not technically have to be US history either. We are historians. We, we are can historians. do something outside we can talk the US. About all sorts of histories. We'll mispronounce words like crazy, sure. but yeah, I try to avoid such things. <laughs> I couldn't do Polish history. No, that'd be very hard. Yeah. I look at Polish words and my brain just freezes. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't know how to pronounce four consonants in a row. No, me either. So, all right. Thank you for joining us this week. Get in touch with us. Let us know what you want to hear next. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. All right. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. Mm -hmm.